word of welcome to all of you who are back. It's been uh, such a privilege to see uh, so many uh, people come up to me, and at first they are, are marvel that I'm still alive. <laughs> and then when I speak, they pray for me a little bit more. And <laughs> so I'm glad. I have a little funny throat this morning. It's really not a cold. It's just creaky. Uh, but uh, if you can stand it, I can. So we'll, we'll go with it. You know, when I, I came out this morning, this is a political year, and I don't care who you vote for. Uh, <laughs> but I, I heard a funny story. I've got to tell you about it. Al Smith, when he was the Democratic candidate uh, for President of the United States and was the first Roman Catholic, of course, to run for that high office, uh, he had been making speech after speech after speech after speech, and he went out to Sing Sing Prison to make a speech. And uh, he was so tired, he began uh, to speak, and he spoke in a microphone, and all these prisoners were assembled in the yard, and he said, Fellow Democrats! And then he thought, no. And then he stopped. And he said, I mean fellow citizens. And then he remembered that prisoners had their citizenship taken away. And then he stopped and he said, well, I'm so glad to see all of you here. <laughs> so, so that's the way I am. I'm glad to see all of you here, regardless of whether you're a Democrat or Republican. We think about, we had a family baptism this morning. We think about the family of God. And I saw a funny thing on TV. You know how the uh, casters or uh, news people are always, you know, the drumbeat is like the Super Bowl. And they getting worked up to it. And they went into the Philadelphia area. Uh, to interview some Italians that were out on the street corner. And I saw this Friday night. And uh, this street vendor was there who had been on the same corner for 30 years, and his father had been there before. And so this man, evidently wishing to elicit one um, answer from him, said to him, how do you feel about uh, uh, Mrs. Ferraro being the uh, first Italian uh, American to be offered for the high office of Vice President of the United States. He said, when I see this on the TV, I cry. <laughs> and this guy said, are you going to vote for her? And he said, oh, no, I vote for the old man in Bush. <laughs> and then, and then uh, he said, what's the matter? Why are you not going to vote for Mrs. Ferraro? He said, wait a minute. He said, she's a Ferraro, he's a Zaccaro. What the children going to think? <laughs> and then he said, well, how does your wife feel about that? He said, hey, mama, come here. <laughs> and she came over and he said, how long have you been married? He said, 41 years. And <laughs> she said, uh, who are you going to vote for? He said, well, she said, what do you think about Miss Ferraro? And she said, she's a nice. And she said, the reporter said, you going to vote for her? She said, no, nah, vote for Nancy. She got it in class. <laughs> and it was funny. Now, that's not an offer to buy or an offer to sell. I don't care who you vote for. So don't get me on that. But it was funny to hear the, the Italians speaking their uh, thing. Uh, <laughs> they have a strong sense of family. And uh, today, we, I want you to look with me at uh, a few verses from John 15. We're like a family here. Uh, look, if you've got good enough eyes to see the print that's in the bulletin, you're much younger than I am. 
<laughs> I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. That's an old English word for one who cares for things. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh it away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he cleanseth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. So neither can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same beareth much fruit, for apart from me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, and so shall ye be my disciples. Even as the Father hath loved me, I also have loved you. Abide ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do the things which I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard of my Father I have made note unto you. Ye did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Bow in prayer. O oh God, our Father, we thank you for the inspiration of our young people. We thank you for our friends who have come back to visit with us. We bless you for our common faith in Jesus Christ and for the remarkable measure of freedom which we know and enjoy in this country, for the love and the beauty that surrounds us, and for the opportunities we have. So we pray that you will bless us in our period of worship, that in this and in the great passage of Scripture we have before us today, we may be drawn to our Savior and truly abide in him, and grant that these gifts which we bring may be supervised by the Holy Spirit and used to bring glory to you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Before we came out this morning, we were trying to recall uh, the time that Corey Tin Boom, many of you may have seen the film, The Hiding Place. What many of you may not realize is that uh, when Jim was a student here in 1970, 14 years ago today, on this October day, Corey Tin Boom spoke right here. Uh, she was visiting in Montreat at that time and stayed in the Donald Munson's home. They were not living in Montreat then. And she and uh, 
The person who accompanied her companion at that time were here for a couple of months. And so we had the joy of getting to know her and to love her. Then many of you saw the film, The Hiding Place, and you saw the account of this remarkable woman's life, how her family so dedicated to Jesus Christ and who had prayed so faithfully that they might show love, especially to Jewish people, were given the remarkable opportunity of doing that during the hideous days of Hitler's madness when he moved into their uh, beloved country of Holland and began to take over its towns and to terrorize its people. And the Jewish people were being arrested and taken away to concentration camps. And then how Corey's family was betrayed and how they were all arrested and taken to prison. On March the 14th, 1944, her dear old father died at the police station, 90 years of age, having been roughly handled by the Nazi stormtroopers who had arrested him. Corey was taken to the notorious Robbinsbrook, a hideous concentration camp where many of those wretched medical experiments that the awful German Nazi doctors carried out uh, on children and uh, women that were there. In the film, The Hiding Place, it opens with a scene in that grim compound where thousands of women are standing, bleak and cold and frightened and gray and haggard and worked to death, and names are being called. And Corey's name is called, and she is to step forward, and a piece of paper is placed in her hand her sister Betsy had already died from the brutal treatment in the prison camp. And Corey took the slip of paper in her hand and then there was one of those flashbacks in the film. She knew that this paper probably meant her death because that's the way the Nazis did it. They called out people of a certain age group and all of them marched forward and then they went to the gas chambers and into the uh, incinerators where they were burned, the crematoria. And she said that the fear came over her of death. But she wasn't afraid. She was so weary and so tired. And then the flashback comes back to her home, to her father's house, and to the family. And how her father when she was a little girl, had come up to her room one night when she had awakened and thought that she might die. And he came into her room and she said, Papa, what would I do if I should die? I'm afraid. And he sat down beside her on the bed and he took her hand and he lovingly talked to her. And he said, Corey, when I when you go on your journey to see your grandmother and you go on the train, when do I give you your ticket for the train? Do I give it to you a week before you go? And she said, no, Papa, not a week before I go. And he said, when do I give it to you? And she said, when you take me to the station and you put me on the train. He said, all right, Corey. Whenever the journey comes for you to go and to be with the Lord, he will give you the ticket that day.
You don't need it until then. That scene came back into her mind in the concentration camp, and it comforted her heart. As it occurred, it was an administrative blunder of man and a miracle of God, and instead of being a ticket to death, it meant that she was freed from that prison camp and went to take her message of love and of God's great love to the whole wide world, showing that the love of Jesus is greater than the power of hatred and darkness. Well, in the night in which Jesus himself was betrayed, when he had met with his own apostles and was instructing them in John chapter 14 where he tells them about heaven and then chapter 15 where he begins to speak of abiding in him. He gives us the lesson that is perhaps the most important lesson for us to remember and it shows how one like Corey is able to abide in Christ even in the midst of a horrible camp of death. She and her sister imprisoned brutalized, were able to pray. And Jesus says that in those final instructions in that upper room, and one of the keys of abiding in him is to abide in prayer. There are hindrances to prayer. If you can think of someone right now that you have not forgiven for some wrong that they have done you, then your path to prayer is blocked. For Jesus said, when we pray, we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you are not willing to forgive, then you are disqualifying yourself from the forgiveness of God. You must forgive. He shows you how to forgive. Look at his nail-scarred hand. Look at his ribbon side. Think of his body broken for you and that it was for you that he died. And then you'll be able to see what it is he loves in the person who has wronged you. And you can let go and let God enable you to forgive. But if we don't forgive, we can't pray aright. And we can abide in Christ only when we are willing to allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us and to live out his life in us. Then I have to go quickly. We abide in him through his word. His word teaches us the way that we should go. It's a lamp unto our path in life. That's why we look to his word for guidance. I believe his word. Corey believed his word firmly and faithfully, and he kept her in the horrors of that camp and turned that experience to his glory. We've had a time with our piano here this morning, and Tom was in here tuning it when I walked in uh, early this morning to get it ready, even though it had been tuned this week. And uh, he was trying to bring it into tune so it would sound right. I heard him strike the keys, and I could hear him with his tuning wrench trying to bring uh, the piano into tune. God's word sends out a vibration to us. 
It tells us whether we are in tune with him or not. Are we in tune with him? Is his word really working in us? Jesus said in the passage that we read a moment ago, ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed to the word of the Lord? If we come to God's word, then God's word has the effect of cleansing in our lives. And then there's a third thing. We abide in him through obedient living. And this is what he scores here very hardly. He says, I am the vine, and ye are the branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, my Father prunes away. Um, he cleanses it of growth that is not productive. Last week I drove a friend through the Biltmore estate, and we looked at some espaliered uh, trees on the beautiful gardens that were there. I first saw those trees when they were on blueprints at Steve Barden's home, an elder in our church who is also a landscape architect and designer. And he had drawn pictures of how they would look. And now the years have gone by, and they have unfolded into a beautiful design that's shown there. Well, so it is here. God prunes us, he cleanses us, and we abide in him through obedient living. Now I want to say something that's worth remembering and be worth coming to Montreat this fall. Not a week goes by that I don't talk with someone who's in some muddle in their personal life or family life or relationships of one type or another. You cannot get out of a spiritual muddle without obeying the Lord. Now remember that. It's hard to believe because it's hard to obey. We want to go ahead and have it our way instead of God's way. And that will not work. It is eternally written in the heavens. It won't work that way. We have to be obedient to God. Even when people misuse us and abuse us, even when it doesn't seem right, God's word will have a word to say to us. We will pray, but then the test of whether we really believe God is whether or not we will obey him. It's not enough simply to read this great passage of scripture in John 15 in abiding and think that because we've read it that we are thereby good Christians. No, we have to put the word into flesh and work it out in life. This is a new commentary by Frederick Bruce, F.F. F. Bruce, one of the great New Testament scholars of our time. This is a footnote that I was noticing on this passage. It is a matter of historical interest that one of the earliest literary works of Karl Marx was a graduation essay written at the age of 17 
on, quote, the union of believers with Christ, according to John 15, 1 through 14, showing its basis and essence, its absolute necessity, and its effect. Now, you can find that in the collected works of Marx and Engels, uh, 1975, Volume 1, pages 636 and 639. It was approved as, quote, a thoughtful, copious, and powerful presentation of the theme. Now, think of that. What could make a man whose whole philosophy has destroyed so much in the world where millions upon millions of people have been put to death in Russia, in Southeast Asia, in China, and which is working its way into Latin America with Marxist-Leninism. And yet there was a time when he was 17 that Marx read the same passage we did and thought of it as very great. He didn't put it to work in his life. He didn't put it to work in his life. And when that happens, then you don't have a personal responsibility to God. And when you have a government where people do not have a personal responsibility to God, then you get all type of hideous excesses, like Hitler had, and like Marx and Lenin has. When Lady Astor visited with George Bernard Shaw in Russia. She visited Joseph Stalin, whom they all referred to as Uncle Joe, and thought he was a great person. And she asked Stalin this question because she had begun to hear about how peasants who did not throw their farms into the collectivism in Russia were being put to death by the hundreds of thousands. And she said to Stalin, when are you going to stop killing people? And his reply is very interesting. He said, as soon as I've killed all I need to. You see, there is no individual sense of guilt or responsibility. Someone outside of this life you must give an accounting to. If you don't, then the rockets and the bombs will fly. People will die in great numbers. This shows part of the atrocities that happen in our world. We abide in him through obedient living. That's important. And lastly, we abide in him through love. We abide in him through love. He uses a, we've seen the joy of friends. I've seen people who have seen each other in the last 48 hours here. And when their eyes met each other, they filled up with tears. They were so happy to see each other again. It's a sentiment, the feeling that comes back. Friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ have a union with each other that is taught by him. Corey could go back and Corey Tin Boom and witness even to the people who brutalized her and killed her family. She could do this because the love of Christ and the fullness of the Holy Spirit was flowing through her life 
and she was possessing the mind of Christ by abiding in him through prayer, through his word, through obedience, and then through love. And love is a verb. A bell is not a bell until you ring it. A song is not a song until you sing it. The love in your heart was not put there to stay, for love is not love till you give it away. Do you have that kind of love in your heart? In closing, I want to tell you one final story. Many of you in the congregation here have heard me speak of Charles Colson, whom I greatly admire because of his tremendous conversion and his work with prisoners. You know one reason that Colson is so strong in the Christian faith and has put that faith to work and working where people do not want to work in the stench-filled prisons of the lands and now reaching out to the world. When Colson was becoming a Christian, that summer when he had gone to Tom Phillips, the president of the Raytheon Corporation, and told him that his life was empty. And Phillips had told him how he had accepted Christ as his Savior. And he offered to Colson a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Colson said that when he left Phillips' home up in Boston, that he went out and got into the, his car, Colson's car, and started to drive away. And he said, I was crying so profusely that I couldn't put the keys into the ignition. And he said, I had to pull over. And I was conscious of a presence. He said, I can't explain it, but I was conscious of a presence. He was reaching out for God. And God was reaching out to him. And then he went to look at the sea, which he loved. And I want to read these words. That Friday morning while I sat alone staring at the sea, this is the day after his visit with Tom Phillips. I sat alone staring at the sea, which I love, in words that I had not been certain I could ever understand or say begin to fall from my lips. I said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit myself to you. I wrote Tom Phillips and told him of the step that I had taken. I asked for his prayers for the long journey ahead. I could not possibly in my wildest dreams imagine what it would involve. How fortunate it is that God does not allow us to see into the future. And then he goes on to tell how when he returned to Washington, he was received by a group of people who formerly had been his political enemies. Democrat and Republican didn't mean anything. They loved each other. They loved each other. And they helped each other. And one of the men that helped him the most is a man that I met one time, too. I walked down the hall with Douglas Coe, who is one of those people who puts on the prayer breakfast. And Doug put his arm around me, and he said, I want to take you into Congressman Albert Queen's office. He said he's a former Marine fighter pilot. 
And he's been a congressman now for 10 years. Actually put in about 20 by now. And when we went into Congressman Clee's office, he had the crew cut and Mr. Clean expression. We talked about Jesus Christ. And I was greatly impressed with this magnificent specimen of a man and a congressman and a Marine. Well, that man is the man that showed Colson the greatest love when Colson needed it the most. He helped him tremendously. And when Colson had uh, been put in prison, everything seemed to go wrong. While he was in prison, his dad, whom he loved greatly, an immigrant to this country, was packing his suitcase to go down to Alabama to see Colson in prison. He had a heart attack. His father had a heart attack and fell dead. While he was in prison, he was disbarred from the practice of law, the way by which he made his living. While he was in prison, his son, who was at the University of North uh, South Carolina at Columbia, was arrested for possessing a large amount of marijuana. And what did Albert Quee, the Marine fighter pilot, the congressman do? He called Colson, and because of his position in the government, he was able to reach him on the phone. To commiserate with him, yes, but even more. What did my listen to Colson tell the story? What did my friend Al QD do? He talked to me on the phone, and Colson said to him, I know you guys in Washington are doing everything possible, and I love you for it. I just don't know what else can be done. There's got to be something else, said. Chuck said, Albert Queen, I've been thinking. And then there was a long pause. And Al Queen said, there's an old statute that someone told me about, and I'm going straight to the president with it. It says that I can serve out your term in prison for you. Stunned, I could only stammer a protest. Al Queen, with 20 years in Congress, the sixth ranking member in the House, the senior minority leader, one of the most respected political figures in Washington, he couldn't be serious about going to jail in my place. Al Quee said, I mean it. I have not come to this decision lightly. I won't let you do it. I said, and Al Quee said, your family needs you, and I can't sleep at night as long as you're in prison. I think I would be happier there than I am here. The lump in my throat made it impossible for me to tell him how much the offer meant, but I told him there was no way I would accept it. Now, that's the kind of love that Jesus talks about in John 15. Do you know Christians who love like that? Why not? Why not? Why don't we love each other that much? We ought to be under conviction about it. 
If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you today to accept him as your Lord and Savior. Let's bow in prayer. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.